There's this thing that every single cat in the history of cats has done to a human. They love you for real. Yeah, th- there's that's not true. Your cats no. do not give a shit about you. No. Alright folks, welcome back to Pocket Liquor. It's episode 10. Episode 10! I'm with my friend, Brandon Plyler. Not one digit, but two. Yes. And it's 10! It is 10. We've had we've had 10 episodes. Seems like just yesterday we were yesterday. getting our first few cranked out there. We've had a lot to reflect upon. Um, I don't know, 10 episodes, is that enough to reflect upon? Uh, I mean, not compared to a lot of podcasts. Yeah, right, sure. <laughs> that have like sure. hundreds of episodes. 84,000 ratings, <laughs> we've been doing it for 10 years. So, um, yeah, I think we're we're definitely excited to be here. Past couple episodes, folks, we've had um, we've been super fortunate to have uh, some of our really good friends as guests on, and uh, we have just been cutting up and having a lot of fun. Uh, this episode, though, we're going to kind of get... Back to a little more of the straightforward, like... Back to basics. So, yeah, some segment stuff, some... uh, We've got some questions for each other. We've got some cool things we've both been uh, doing some research into. Um, I don't think we have any listener questions for today. I think we've got a few that we're kind of stockpiling, perhaps, for the next episode. Yeah. Uh, But if if you're curious about anything, please drop us a line. You can hit us up at pocketlicker at gmail.com. You can send us a direct message to our Instagram page, which is yep. at Pocket Liquor. Uh, we have a Facebook page also. Any of those things work. Just send us a message, and uh, we try to check that stuff as as good as we can. Uh, and For we'll sure. get back to you, and if it's a good question, we'd love to feature it. Yeah, please. Uh, we're, we're serious. Anything that you uh, have questions about booze-wise, or, you know, otherwise. I mean, if, what if someone asks us a question about, I don't know, the political climate, are we going to ignore it? I, I doubt it. I doubt it. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's not what not, this podcast is about. But we're not a couple of theologians here, so you know, <laughs> as far as the religious stuff, you may not get back what you're looking for. Uh, but you know, booze is booze is tied up in history and politics and art and fashion um, and necessity and things like that. And I I think we touch on that all the time. So yep. if you've got a question like that, I mean, listen, the worst thing we'll do is politely say that's not our cup of tea because. You know, there's no booze in. I don't know. Anyway, uh, so what are we? Uh, what are we going to talk about first? Or we should we should get a drink in front of you uh, first of all because yeah. you just got off work yeah, from the brewery. I think so man, I mean, even though I'm around beer all day, a beer would be very cool. Let's do it. What do we have here? Uh, so we actually have um, we uh, we did a collaboration brew with Burial in Asheville over the weekend, and uh, you know, brewers of course brought back some amazing beer from Burial. They do wonderful things. Uh, but they also stopped at the Sierra Nevada Brewery uh, in Mills River, which is about 25, 30 minutes outside of Asheville. Uh, and they brought back some really fresh uh, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, uh, which is certainly a beer that got me into drinking beer. And if you haven't had one in a long time, folks, I mean, that stuff's classic for a reason. It's really good. It's all Cascade hops, 5% alcohol, 5, 5.2%, something like that. Well, we have a bottle right here. It is... Ba, 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 ba. Okay, 
5.6. Wow, it's a little bit stronger than I remembered. The draft version of this, believe it or not, um, gets a separate rating. I, I'm pretty sure it's still the same, but it's under 5% alcohol. They actually, uh, they actually keg it at a little bit of a lower CO2 level, uh, and it's a little bit lower alcohol. So Sierra Nevada Draft, hmm. if you get that, should be like a much easier drinking beer. Not that the bottle... Um, not that the bottle, there, there's nothing wrong with it, but the bottle is bottle conditioned, so it's re-fermented in the bottle. Uh, Interesting. And you get a little more carbonation from it. It's a little bit stronger. Wow, that's, uh, that's fascinating. I remember, uh, I remember my first Sierra Nevada, Sierra Nevada pale ale. My friend Eddie poured me one, and uh, we just drank it right out of the bottle, really cold out of the fridge, and I, I, it stuck with me. It's it's one of my one of my all time favorites. Uh, I'm sure they still do it, but they used to do uh, these 24-ounce big kind of crazy-looking bottles of the beer. Yeah. Um, this is just one of my favorite things. And this beer, when I got a hold of it in early 2000s, had to be 2001 maybe, you know, when I got a hold of this beer, it was this mind-blowingly bitter, hoppy thing. Of course, as you drink hoppy beers and you kind of move around, um, I think Vinny from um, Russian River calls it a, uh, what is it? It's a lupulin threshold shift. Ooh. Essentially, as you drink hoppy beer... Sounds like the name of a Rush song or something. Yeah, something like that. As you drink hoppy beer and you get used to the hoppiness and the bitterness, your palate kind of shifts into... You can kind of tolerate a little more. So, you know, if you think about whatever kind of hot sauce you may have started out liking, and if you really enjoyed that flavor and the heat, you know, then, you know, it starts out with Texas Pete, and then... Yeah, you move on. Uncle Jerry's Crazy Atomic... (laughs) <laughs> you know, peppers grown in a Peruvian insane asylum. <laughs> Some spicy stuff, buddy. Yikes! Yeah, I mean, I I remember the first time I had this, and I was fairly new to hoppy beers, and thought it was it was really really delicious. But you know, as I've you know had all the you know palate wreckers and and you know what have you, um, it it's just still one of those super classic examples of a very well balanced, very well made beer. And, uh, you know, the fresher, the better, but, you know, it's it's a good go-to. When I was living in Mississippi, uh, before they changed the laws, it was very much a controlled state. You couldn't find a, hardly any craft breweries. Um, there was maybe one in the state, and, like, the hoppiest thing you could find really was Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. So I drank a ton of it then, and it was it kind of got you through those things. But then when we got stuff from Sierra Nevada, like Torpedo and, and their, uh, what's it called, uh, the Ruthless Rye, Pale Ale or IPA. It was a rye. It was a rye India Pale Ale. Yeah. That was a great beer. I oh, loved it. Uh, we sold a ton of it. Everyone was thirsty for it. Like you know, you nah. couldn't get it or get beers like that anyway. It's really interesting if you read back into the story of Ken Grossman, the guy that that uh, you know, opens here in Nevada, uh, from home brewer to I mean a billion dollar business where it's at now. When he began making hoppy beer, uh, the only hops you could get for like home brewing or anything were hops. Like in quotation marks, like you would get a brick of dried hops that have just been mashed together into this like product, and there was it was not a varietal thing. Wow! So it was just a bittering type thing. You bought a package of it. You just you went to a homebrew store and said, "I need hops," and they handed you a brick, and it was the only option you had. Did they have homebrew stores then, or did you have to like order it? Yeah, I think so. You I know, think through they, a I catalog or something. They, I think there were like some wine and like beer making kind of things. You know, in the late seventies, I believe, maybe nineteen seventy eight, Jimmy Carter legalized homebrewing. 
That's right. I remember. I remember this right. part. So, of it so that there, obviously, that was going on beforehand. So, I believe that you know that was kind of a lead into that happening. But the only hops you could get were what commercial brewers were using. And at the time, in the late seventies, the only commercial brewers in the U.S. were big, like macro lager mm-hmm. type operations. So they only used hops for bitterness. They were not looking for flavor. Surely not looking for aroma. So you had this product package that only delivered bitterness and nothing else. He actually went up to Northern California and the Pacific Northwest and worked with hop farmers to see like what an actual, like a hop cone looked like, like as it was growing and then worked with those guys to kind of um, help refine hops, help like pick certain varieties of hops out. This works for this, this works. It really, it's fascinating stuff. Um, And it's really interesting how, how much work Sierra Nevada has done for like craft beer and how that's, you know, how far that's come in. Damn, I'm feeling old, man, but nearly 40 years. Yeah. Um, I mean, how old are you now? You're what, like 79? I'm 79 inside. 79 inside. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. My organs are in their late 90s. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's really cool. And this is delicious. Uh, all right, folks. So we want to kind of address something that we've touched on uh, briefly in the past. We want to get into fortified wine. Finally, we've talked about it so much. Fortified wine comes from Spain, uh, can come from Portugal, uh, Sicily, Italy, uh, famously comes from a few other places. And at one time, it was insanely popular. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that one time was, say, you know, mid-19th to, say, early 20th century. Sure. So perhaps drinking fortified wine might seem old-fashioned to you. Or maybe you just associate fortified wine with uh, old timiness. Old timiness, or uh, I believe, as I've heard someone say, the bum and student market. Oh my! As far as people <laughs> shopping for cheap booze, and just to let you know, folks, if you make cheap booze and you choose to call it the bum and student market, uh, you owe Pocket Liquor um, quite quite an amount of money. Yes, yeah, uh, we've. We're working on that anyway. Yes. Yeah, we're working on that. We've got we've got things. Yeah, yeah, we've got things. Double secret trade. Bowman's student uh, So fortified wine. This is kind of where this comes from. If you've heard of like port wine or sherry or Madeira or maybe Marsala, those are the big ones that most people know. There's some more obscure things out there for the wine nerds um, who hopefully aren't punching the ceilings of their car right now. But we'll have some more of those moments, I'm sure, in this explanation because the production wine uh, nerds had it coming. They well, talk down to everyone. Well, the thing is, is that these wines are made in like different places from different grapes. They're kind of fortified in different spots. And um, most of them have been made for centuries. Uh, so there's a lot nerd wise. There's a lot to kind of dig into it. And we're not going to get we're not going to get really into that today. We really want to just kind of cover like what's the difference between Sherry, Madeira and Port. Yeah. And I mean, well, we should also probably touch on vermouth like just for a second. It's a slightly separate category, but it's in the same, I don't know, wheelhouse realm, if you will. So, but let's, let's start at the top. Uh, what you got? You, you want to talk about, let's do Sherry first. Sure. Um, let's do. Yeah. 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 It doesn't matter where we start. Let's do Sherry. Most people know that one. Yeah. Um, so Sherry comes from kind of a little triangle in Spain. The grapes, like the white wine grapes, which mostly it's comprised of, they make kind of like sort of okay wines, like table wines. Um, And you'll kind of see this with a lot of fortified wine production. What really makes the wine amazing is like the actual production that the wine goes through. So the process and sherry of all of these 
has to be the most complicated. So I'm yeah. going to try to keep this as slim down as possible. But the thing to really know and remember about sherry is that for the most part, the wines are fortified after they've gone through their primary fermentation. Mm-hmm. Now, what does that mean to you? So fortified means to strengthen. Uh, you can think of other words, you know, fortification. If you look at the word fort itself, I mean, that means strong, a stronghold, something like that. So the idea of fortification, which is adding a clear, unaged uh, distillate of grape wine, generally a brandy, an unaged clear yep. brandy, that would be that originally would have been added to cask of wine, basically to make sure they were stable for shipment. Yeah, and uh, you know we've talked about these kind of things before. Think about how things got from one place to another. Uh, a bottle of like you know you know, natural wine that we are, you know, everyone is into these days wouldn't, or a bottle or barrel or whatever you had it in would not have made it, you know, the six week journey up the road on a cart or the three month journey over the sea to wherever it was that it would, it would come out just, you know, completely disgusting and sour and right. compl- like just full of off flavors. So to combat that, if you, uh, you know, essentially sort of sterilize it with liquor, yeah, pretty pretty much. Me, I mean, folks didn't really understand how fermentation worked. I mean, they knew that there was a certain amount of like uh, in beer brewing, a certain amount of kind of like beer brewing sludge, kind of like a sourdough starter that needed yeah. to be reused every time. With wine, of course, uh, whatever native uh, yeast are in the winery or on the skins of the actual fruit itself that get crushed, they will begin to naturally ferment. Um, but typically, they didn't understand like you know germ theory or. Uh, the, these small, like yeast, like fungus things, were eating sugar and refermenting it, uh, and it was kind of a tough thing to control. So, if you had your wine, you thought it was all done fermenting, and you sent the barrels out to England or to anywhere um, in the world, and they started to referment in the wooden barrels, they would explode because wooden barrels can really not handle um, too much uh, CO two pressure. Yeah, uh, you know, I mean, just imagine the the problems therein, uh, and if even if you were bottling it and shipping it somewhere, uh, I mean, you know, we we don't have too much of a problem these days about bottles exploding, but it happens. Refermentation happens in bottles of beer, wine, whatever, and they'll they'll pop if you know if the conditions are right. So uh, this fortified wine thing, uh, you, you know, is sort of born of necessity, like most things that we see in the booze world historically. Uh, you know, we everyone wants hooch everywhere, uh, and we're trying to get it, you know, across oceans, down long roads, uh, you know, across continents, and and they figured out somehow. Again, it's it, it's kind of funny to think about how people figured out how to do any of this. If you go back to like not a, not just like you know distillation, but even further back, like how did you know people just? I mean, I guess just generations and time gives you, you know beer production and, and all this so, empirical stuff. knowledge man yeah sure empirical this, knowledge this plus this does this you know and move hope, forward but hopefully it all works out and you have something <laughs> stable um and i mentioned the british earlier because we for port especially for port sherry and madeira uh you see not only like a, a long tradition of those wines being um not just consumed in england but loved and embraced and like england is the number one consumer of those products um obviously you know the climate in england really works well with a warming fortified wine um but also the british drank a lot of french wine 
uh, claret, which is what they would have called Bordeaux at the time. They drank a lot of Burgundy. They were in Champagne, of course. They were really into all of those wines. Unfortunately, if you were British, they were habitually at war with the French, uh, which meant that getting anything from France wine-wise was pretty challenging, depending on what decade you were kind of born in. Yeah, uh, Spain too, you know, on and off. Spain too, yeah. So yeah, absolutely. I mean, and and that's Portugal. You know, they they would they were getting a ton of wine from uh, the island of Madeira. Uh, these wonderful, like, kind of fortified wines from there. This kind of tropical place. Uh, and I believe to this day, the the British government still has an agreement. So if you if you shipped anything uh, in the Atlantic, if you were shipping things, um, especially if you were trading with England, you had to use British ships to sail your cargo on, and you had to pay taxes to the British government. I believe the islands of, uh, I believe Portugal and the islands of Madeira still have a contract. It's about six, 700 years old that basically alleviates them from that. I think it's one of the oldest, like, continually honored, like, contracts uh, in the business world. Something wow. like that. I may be getting a few, a few of the finer points not necessarily correct on that. Well, I'm, I, I doubt they have it like posted somewhere convenient at like the to where that works at, at like the the water cooler uh, of the office of all that. So, like, hey, just so you remember, Portugal, Portugal, still using our stuff, you know, so, our ships. <laughs> so, as far as sherry goes, sherry, as far as this whole, as far as this, like what we're talking about today uh, of these fortified wines, sherry typically is going to be the driest. Uh, that's because the wines, generally speaking, they are fortified. They have this brandy added to them after they have been fermented as a regular wine. Um, they can back sweeten those a little bit with some other methods. Uh, and there are absolutely some dessert wines. If you'll see them, you'll see some grapes, uh, Pedro Jimenez or Moscatel from the Sherry region. Uh, those are generally made with uh, raisined grapes that have a lot of residual sugar. So you can get those wines uh, that are kind of outliers that are very syrupy. I mean, Pedro Jimenez, if you've, if you've never had Pedro Jimenez, pouring that, like drizzling that on like vanilla ice cream is an unbelievably cool dessert thing to do. Yeah. Um, and we'll get more into cooking uh, with, uh, with some wine a little bit later on. Um, sherry is also, they kind of fall into oxidized or non-oxidized camps. Um, there is a layer of yeast called floor that will develop on top of the wine in a cask uh, that will prevent it from being exposed to oxygen. So, so it won't heavily oxidize. So you like imagine a, a stack of barrels and you know, have to stack barrels sort of in a triangular shape, usually if they're all stacked on top of each other. I mean, I'm sure places use racks and whatever, but they, all these barrels have this like layer of oxygen, you know, protection that's just basically, you know, yeast floating on top of it. And through evaporation, like, you know, the barrels get a little bit lower and things change and, you know, things get stronger and, and all kinds of crazy flavors develop. And then a lot of places they, in the Solera system, they blend these all sort of together, right? Like that's, that's for certain styles, correct? Yeah. So, so for Solera, Solera sherries, um, what Solera really means is, is a Solera for a lot of, uh, for uh, a lot of other places too. Like you'll see a Solera that says, you know, um, Solera 1927. I think it's Alvier that has one of those. Uh, and 1927. So that does not mean that all the wine in there is from 1927. In fact, maybe a drop is from there. But what it does mean is that they started this whole pyramid in 1927. So they you pull wine out of the oldest cask that you have. You bottle that. You do whatever you want with it. 
uh, to refill that cask to top it up, you pull wine from the cask underneath it that are the next oldest. And to top those casks up, you go down one. And that goes down the pyramid. So you're always kind of moving the wine up in age, up to the very top, up to where, you know, you have what is considered to be the Solera quality wine. That's uh, it's very interesting. And, and uh, again, this is probably something sort of born out of necessity uh, that wound up being a defining trait of this of this style of wine. I, you know, personally, I mean, I, I don't know if this is true or not, but uh, I would imagine that the necessity is, uh, and I know this from the brewing world, like if you have barrels, you have to keep them wet. Because if you yeah. don't keep those barrels like hydrated and wet and happy, and the hydration doesn't doesn't have to be from water. It can be, but it doesn't have to be from water. But if you don't keep those barrels wet, what happens is that the wood shrinks and the metal rings that are around the wood that hold it together, they don't shrink. So what will happen is you'll the staves will start to get loose. And once that happens and you lose that seal, the barrel is pretty much a, I mean, it's, it's an awesome planter for uh, outside plants. You can use it as a piece of furniture. You can put a television on top of it. But that's about what the barrel's good for. So I imagine they probably had these barrels hanging out and they just needed to keep refilling them to some degree to keep them like wet and hydrated and swollen and like in a, in a state to where they would hold uh, liquid reliably. I mean, and barrels aren't easy to make. Like they never have been. <laughs> like it's, you know, and imagine, you know, a few hundred years ago, if you know, you know, you you need a barrel to store something. It's not like you just throw them away like we do a lot of you know containers these days. It's you know, it's a bit of a craft. There's there's a lot of work that goes into it. So, you know, using keeping those barrels full and reused, I mean, just makes sense. Yeah, keep them happy. So the general takeaway here is that sherry. Um, there are some sweet sherries out there, but by and large, sherry is going to be on the dry side. They're super food friendly. Um, I mean, to a point to where they're absolutely fascinating with hams and like Marcona olives and cheeses. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, Manchego, I mean, things that are, you know, decidedly Spanish. Um, but I mean, just cause you know, it's, it's from there and everything doesn't mean that Sherry can't be paired with like anything. I mean, yeah. you know, I mean a piece like I've had like a really dry Sherry with like a really rich bowl of noodles, uh, a dry sherry with um, like a Caesar salad is fantastic. Dude, I bet you know? with a Caesar, that's nice. With the anchovies, yeah, like that, oh, that like super awesome. dry and chilled. But then also on the like you said, the vanilla ice cream, like dessert thing, like you know, a richer, you know, more bold sherry uh, alongside, like as almost like a like sort of a palate, not palate cleanser for sure, but like almost like a teaser for dessert when you're having like you know a fillet or something like that is really nice. Yeah, I could totally see like a. a it's gla- a very broad, you know, I mean, category. For, you can there's there's a there's a sherry for every occasion. Really, I could totally have like a glass of like a Montiato or something like that, like in between courses, is like just a little refresher, just to kind of like knock something back. Yeah. Until something big and heavier, because uh, they're they're fascinating wines. Sherry, and and by the way, we're we're moving through sherry here very much in the broad strokes. Um, and there are great books out there, lots of resources, lots of options. Like you should, if, if you haven't gotten into Sherry yet, I don't know what you're doing with your life. Uh, Madeira, Madeira is kind of like Sherry in the sense that if you want to get really nerdy and go down the, go down the rabbit hole and uh, explore different styles and different grapes and different ages, uh, Madeira is a fascinating thing. Madeira is one of those wines that's kind of born out of this travel we were talking about. It's born out of 
um, exposure to heat and oxygen and just uh, the motion of a ship rocking back and forth. Uh, well, it's made on an island. Like the only way to get it in and out of there is on a ship. It's on a ship, yeah. Um, so those wines and that, the, the heating and oxidative process that they go through uh, give them this very unique, almost, I don't want to say like caramel, but some of them can have these like nice, like light caramelized flavors. They pick up a lot of oak. The heat, which kind of caramelizes the sugars from that are really, really fascinating. And there's uh, the, the one, the ones that are really fancy and expensive can, they're at least 20 years in the barrel, usually a little bit more than that. You're going to pay a little bit of money for them, but it's not that crazy for what you end up getting. Um, and they should still have like kind of a fresh acidity. And again, most of the grapes that make up Madeira, you would not really want to make like a table wine out of them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I mean, kind of like the grapes they used to make, you know, cognac is like wine is gross. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uni Blanc and Converse. <laughs> terrible. Yeah. Absolutely terrible. But the process it undergoes. Uh, is really just what's fascinating. And that's another thing to kind of think about when we're talking about these fortified wines, the process of how it's produced and but what you get in the bottle. It, it went through a lot, a lot of human interaction. Whereas, uh, you know, some of some wines that you would, you know, some of the best wines in the world have really very little. Like, you know, they were grown carefully, let them do their thing, and then, you know, harvested, fermented carefully, uh, but, you know, kind of hands off you know, let it, let it speak for itself. And then, you know, you, you, you know, after all that, you know, you bottle it up and, and that's, that's the wine kind of speaking of the terroir and, you know, where it came from. It's not really the case here though. Uh, with a lot of these fortified wines, yeah, sure. You know, the grapes grown, you know, in and around the cherry triangle, obviously that's what they use. But by the time you get that bottle in your hand, the terroir quote unquote is kind of gone, but Again, if you think about it, like these these things have been sitting in barrels on these islands or in you know Spain or wherever, you know absorbing the the air from the sea or what part of the you know whatever part of the country they're in. Uh, so it, it's it's like terroir, but it's it's more about the environment, like just you know like the temperature and what the air is like, uh, which is is really interesting to me. Yeah, fascinating. I mean that that is fascinating stuff. I, I enjoy that. Um as you're tasting the wines, you know, you're not looking for as much, you're, you're not searching as much for soil or things like that. Vintage, vintage matters, but not as much as you think. Um, and in vintage, I think we kind of move into port wine. Now, port uh, is one of the first wines to really focus on using uh, the word vintage, putting a year on it and essentially telling folks, hey, you can, you can age this forever. And, and by the way, folks, for most like fortified wines, for the most part, they're not really going to go bad on you. Um, we're not talking about, I mean, m most wines you buy these days, anywhere, 95% of them, it's meant to be cellared between the store and your house. Like, that's how yeah. long you should keep it. Go home, pull the cork, bust the cap off of it, whatever. Pour a glass and enjoy. Um, but some fortify, I mean, Madeira's, I mean, you can find, that people have Madeira's now from the 18th century, so from the 1700s. They're still kicking around. The wines are still good. They're still hanging out, which is absolutely insane. Like that. That's uh, you know, if you want to talk about drinking history, that is. Oh yeah, ab absolutely insane. Sherry. Some of these Soleras have been around for I mean, forever. I mean, people have been making these wines for a long time, and they're they're pretty sturdy and they hold up. Um, and port wine, probably of what you'll get in a bottle, they are extremely famous for aging really well. Um, I've had some 30, 40 year old bottles of port 
have been kind of blown away by how good they are. I mean, that's that's like the point of this whole thing. It's called fortified wine for a reason. Like, it is designed to withstand the you know the pressures of time and poor storage and you know being bumped around on a you know cargo ship or whatever for months on end. It's uh, you know it's it's a good buy pretty much any time you if you find right. something that you know you like, you don't have to worry about it being you know fucked up. It's it's designed to be just like that. I've had it's um, like buying a bottle of whiskey. Like that whiskey is supposed to taste the same. There's no such thing as like you know, right? Spoiled whiskey, really. I mean, we go down that rabbit hole and get into the science of it, but you know, <laughs> yeah, we're not doing that today. Yeah, and, uh, and and again, folks, there there are definitely intro level like approachable um, labels that you can get into just to try out. So don't think that what we're talking about is an investment of hundreds of dollars or the next like twenty years of your life. That's totally not the case. Um, Port wine is port wine is probably the fortified wine that got me into fortified wines. Um, I, I'd say that's probably the case with most people. I think so. Most people know what a glass of port is kind of about. Yeah. So for port and Madeira, but we'll, we'll focus on port for now. Port is fortified before it is done fermenting. That's kind of an important del, uh, delineation point there. Uh, the wine has the grapes have a certain amount of uh, sweetness of sugar that would naturally be fermented into alcohol. Say to a wine that's maybe around 12, 13, 14 percent alcohol. Uh, when that wine hits around, and again, I'm, we're very much generalizing here, but when the wine hits, say around five, six, seven percent alcohol, uh, then the brandy is added and that fortifies the wine. So it fortifies it. And it also shuts down fermentation. If you remember our last episode with Cam, he talked about his uh, his fantasy of making a uh, fortified mead, and he used the term arresting the fermentation. That's what that's what he meant. I'm sorry if anyone like that was weird to hear. <laughs> arresting the fermentation, <laughs> throwing it in the clink, taking away. It's right I there wish there. we had like taken a video of that because the look on his face was so serious when he was describing arresting his... fermentation. <laughs> what was he calling it? It was mead, mort. I think mort, is what he wanted. Mort to call. or or peed is what he was trying. That's to That's what call I came it. up with because kind of yeah, kind of in the kind of in the vein of like a port wine. Oh, yes, yeah, but anyway. Anyway, uh, port. <laughs> we've, we've already we talked about it too much last time. <laughs> sorry, we're all very, very sorry. Uh, port, for what most people know, is it's more than a red wine. It's more of like a deep purplish kind of wine. Usually has a lot of color. Uh, you get a lot of um, a lot of tannin, a lot of uh, structure from the grapes there, which also, along with the brandy and being like twenty percent alcohol, help the wines just be sturdy. Uh, port is fantastic. I mean, after dinner with cigars, blue cheese, things like that, you get a lot of deep, like just vibrant kind of red fruits from it. Uh, and you get this warming. I, there's something about the tannin in that wine and this like warming boozy thing on the after finish that just make it extremely comforting and very pleasurable to drink. It's, you know, it makes sense to drink these things after a big dinner or at the end of the evening. Uh, just because, I mean, you think about what you're, you know, if you are at a big fancy dinner and you've had many courses, like this, this is the only thing that's going to stand out on your palate. There, there's, there's a reason that 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 port is known as a dessert wine, but there, are, you know, there are different bottles of port out there that you can drink, you know, any time of the day. But uh, typically, it, you know, you reserve this for like your your nightcap or you know something to go with your dessert. Uh, just you know, just because of the nature of it. Like, you don't want something big, bold, sugary, sweet, heavy on the palate. 
you know, when you're, when you're just starting to rock, cause you're not going to, you know, notice the, the finer things of that, you know, mezzi plate that someone put in front of you. Absolutely. Um, and another, you know, and obviously Jace can speak a little bit more to this than I can, even though I make some pretty, some pretty serious like whiskey and fortified wine cocktails at my house. I don't know. Um, would you call it a cocktail if you're just pouring two things at room temperature into the same glass and drinking it rapidly? I, I mean, I'm not saying I wouldn't. A, you were drastically underestimating my cocktail prowess at my house, <laughs> Jace. And two, you're kind of coming across like Judgy Bear, which might be the name of my next cocktail, Jace. <laughs> could, be, could be the name of our next podcast. Uh, um, I, I definitely enjoy, um, honestly, a little bit of, uh, uh, recently I've had some bourbon uh, and this wonderful uh, Valdespino Amontillado sherry at the house. And I've basically been doing about an ounce and a half of whiskey to, uh, I think, three quarters of an ounce uh, of the sherry. I'll stir that, put it on ice, and splash in uh, some Peychaud's bitters. And that's not a very... That's a cocktail. That's not anything crazy, it's but it's, it's... It's almost like you're fortifying fortified wine. It's like I'm fortifying fortified wine. That's you're a re- wonderful, wonderful little drink after dinner. It's very yeah. nice. That's like a fortress. It's like a fortress. <laughs> it's like a fortress. <laughs> Uh, you can have fun with these folks. Uh, there's also such a thing as uh, white port wine, uh, which you get is still 20% alcohol made from white grapes. Um, that's great, honestly, on the rocks in the summertime. Yeah, uh, it's pretty pretty neat, refreshing thing. So you can have fun with fortified wines. And um, as far as like the share, like maybe not sherry, but like especially with Madeira, if you're a whiskey fan, and maybe maybe you like having that extra cocktail at the end of the evening. But you don't need something that's going to be 80 proof or even higher. Uh, a little bit of Madeira, even with like a, a cube of ice in like just a, yeah. a, a, a straight like dry Madeira or even a sweet one. Having that in a rocks glass is an awesome replacement for a whiskey. It's 20% alcohol. It's half as strong. It has a lot of flavor, a lot of the oak flavor and kind of caramel flavors you're looking for. It's really enjoyable. And generally, you're going to wake up and feel a bit better. Plus, it's fancy as fuck. But it's fancy as fuck, sure. Yeah. I mean, not necessarily expensive, but, you know, that's something you drink with your pinky up. That's, you know, that that makes you cooler than all your friends. And, you know, speaking of being, a, you know, judgy, but, you know, look, if you want to look cool, maybe actually if you want to look cool, maybe don't drink Madeira in front of people. But uh, You know, <laughs> typically I treat it like whiskey and I'll put it in a little wine glass or a Glencairn glass. Uh, and I really enjoy that. But I would be lying if I didn't say that I had some prohibition era pre-prohibition era cordial glasses at the house that i drink little fancy fortified wines out of and do you just say that while you're pouring it little fancy fortified wines little fancy fortified yeah for plyler yeah just for me and just for you little glass gotta take the bottle with you because it's just a tiny glass (laughs) (laughs) that's what they say uh that's that's very interesting uh what else we got on this is that about it I think that's about it. I mean, the, the other fortified wine people are really familiar with is Marsala, uh, which is uh, from from Sicily, started by, I believe it was the same guy that uh, was involved in Smith Woodhouse, which is a famous port house um, in a puerto in the Douro Valley. And they began basically, you know, selling fortified wine out of port, got really popular, sold a lot of it. Uh, and he started an operation there uh, to kind of do the same thing. Uh, if I'm remembering all this correctly, I believe huh. I am. And Marsala was one of those wines. I mean, the the idea behind like a strong, uh, 
wine with residual sugar. Uh, those were extremely popular in the 19th century just because that's right on the cusp of like when the major sugar trade starts to fire up between Cuba and the Caribbean and the rest of the world as far as like refined sugar. Interesting. Because you really couldn't find a lot of it. The Europeans were using, um, you know, beets, things like that to get sugar from. But honey was like a big sweetening source. But people didn't have access to sweet things. So anything that was like rich and sweet and unctuous, those were considered to be absolute luxuries. Um, and if you read back uh, in the literature... Can not you imagine just, giving one of those people like a Snickers bar and just being like, yeah, we have too many of these. You would have blown their fucking mind. <laughs> I, and I, I really do mean that. If you, took, if you took a pint of Ben and Jerry's Chunky Monkey back 300 years ago, you would have blown people's minds. If you would have let somebody taste that, they probably, like, the banana in it, they probably would not have known what that flavor no. was. Well, and they wouldn't know what, like, modern, you know... Right, modified bananas taste sure. like they they wouldn't know what chocolate was. No. I mean, chocolate's a new world thing. Like you start to see, they um, mi- I mean, they might have, but not like milk sweetened milk chocolate. Not you know what have. I mean? No, of course not. You would have blown people's minds with that stuff. So a lot of these sweet things were just considered to be luxurious. So I keep having to update my what I would do with the time machine thing. Now I just want to like. I don't know. Give like Oliver Cromwell a, a payday bar or something like that. Wonder if he was allergic to peanuts. <laughs> he could have been allergic to peanuts. Thought you were gonna say you're gonna show uh, showed up with like you know they call this kielbasa. <laughs> yep. Yeah. You, yeah, you can eat the whole thing yourself. Yeah, or like giving giving like Genghis Khan a Big Mac. Like, what do you think? <laughs> think, homie. He may cut your head off. I don't Probably know. Probably immediately. I mean, look at me. Uh, it, it's pretty. It's pretty wild. I mean, what if you went back with a vape pen? What could you have gotten done with that? Oh God. <laughs> like just or take that to like the Yalta conference just see how you can shape the world <laughs> I don't know he looks like a wizard <laughs> maybe he's, we should listen to him <laughs> yeah, yeah he's got some good good ideas keeps bringing up this VHS thing and it's blowing my mind <laughs> Stalin sit down what are you doing so uh, we're gonna talk about Stalin here in a minute actually but go ahead uh, so yeah so you would have blown their minds and Marsala and we'll leave on this because I really want to get into this Stalin story uh, that Jace has been getting into because we've been chatting about it for a while now and it's really really interesting uh, but for Marsala uh, here's the skinny on it is there fancy Marsala out there yes there's like a couple uh and they're basically people who are saying, we're tired of Marsala being called like such a shitty wine. We're trying to make something fancy and really awesome. And I've had those wines, a couple of them, and they're doing great. For the most part, though, Marsala is not super high grade. Um, there's a few producers out there that are making something that, uh, something you want to cook with, something you want to drink on its own and also put in your food. Um, that said, I mean, you know, you can mess around with Marsala. Sure. Let's talk about uh, let's talk about Uncle Joe. We want to go back to our historical booze figure segment. I believe Jace is taking us down the evil despot edition of uh, <laughs> famous <laughs> drinking figures. Yeah. So last time we did this segment, uh, we talked about George Washington, um, and I, I just I, I Stalin is a terrifying and fascinating. 
figure in uh, fairly recent world history and, you know, a guy who uh, enjoys a beverage and enjoys drinking with other people. I just had to know what his drinking habits were like, if any. Um, And turns out, yeah, yeah, he drank. Uh, He was not a, he's not like a Churchill. He was not a day-to-day, you know, drunk everyday kind of dude. Uh, as Plyler picks up the bottle of rum I've got for us today, which, yeah, I, I want some of that. Um, we've got some uh, Clement, uh, there we go. Yeah, you want to do that next to the mic. Uh, Clement uh, Rum Agricole. It's, uh, is that the XO or the VSOP? I can't remember now. The XO. That's the XO, yeah. We're, we grabbed the fancy stuff, bud. Fancy, fancy. Uh, this was actually a gift from Adam Rothstein of Home Team Barbecue here in Charleston. Good friend of mine uh, who has excellent taste in rum and gifts because I am excited to have this. So we're going to have a dram of this. Uh, anyway, so Stalin, you know, the great guy that he was. If you don't know much about him, he was a premier of Russia uh, starting in 1941, but effectively ran the you know, the Russian Federation before that. Uh, he, he sort of replaced himself uh, from this guy named Molotov uh, and became the premier in 1941. Uh, he, you know, you, you can watch the Netflix documentary to see how, of a, you know, how terrible he was before that. But he uh, was, you know, famous for a lot of things. Uh, intimidation tactics were one of his uh, strong suits. Uh, he was really good at, you know, having these parties with his, you know, you know, councilmen and, and the, you know, the party in general and getting everyone but himself really fallen down drunk and then taking the information he would get from them and using it against them, you know, the day after. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people got sent to the gulags and, you know, other terrible places like, you know, death. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people have experience with that on some level. Yeah. It's just probably with like like someone who seems like your friend but really isn't, maybe a relative, but certainly not someone who can, you know, send you to Siberia to be worked to death. Yeah, it's it's a it's a little bit more serious with him. That was one of his one of his many tactics to get information out of people and see where people's loyalties lied. Uh but he he did have you know his preferences. Uh, he you know he could hold his own. Apparently he was he was pretty good at you know you know keeping up with people. Apparently when he was hanging out with Churchill and uh, Roosevelt, uh, he could go glass for glass of you know you know vodka martinis or whatever with Churchill, who's a famous uh, drinker, which we'll probably feature on a later episode. Uh, so it's not like he was a fallen down you know problem alcoholic. But he, you know, he, he knew his way around a bottle for sure. He obviously, you know, drank a lot of vodka, but uh, this is, uh, you know, one of the biggest things that, you know, if you know anything about Stalin is he was actually from the country of Georgia, uh, you know, from sort of south, southeast-ish uh, Russia, and was a big fan of the wine that's made there. And, and it's very interesting, Plyler, we were talking about this the other day, the wine right. that comes from Georgia are some of the oldest vines in the world in, in that the have world, survived. Yeah. Yep, that's right. Uh and it's, it's hard to get your hands on them in the States. Um, and they've got some crazy varietal names. Like, uh, I'm going to, pr- I'm going to butcher these, but I'm just going for it. Like, uh, Kins Marali and Vanchkara, uh, Sinda, Sinandali. They're, they're these crazy, uh, Georgian varietals that a lot of people don't know about, but they make amazing wine there. I believe I remember a story where they took the, so when the went, it was like when the winter palace was taken, from the uh, Tsar Nicholas and his family, the last of the Romanovs, 
um, that like some of the treasures they were most looking to get a hold of uh, was the wine cellar where they had hoarded Georgian wine because it was so so delicious and so kind of well thought of and that um, Stalin had all of that hauled off as his like personal type collection thing. There really? were there were tales that he was taking baths in it. I believe I I, I recall reading years ago. Um, of course, if you're you know an evil, powerful despot of a country that you're starving to death, you probably don't want those stories circulating. Well, and they probably grow themselves. You know those story, those rumors just kind of probably pop up, right? <laughs> whether you whether there's any validity to them or not. I'm not trying to defend him by any means, but you know, I'm sure there's. Lots of stories of what he bathed in. Um, there's another. I found another interesting thing. He was also a fan of this brandy that's made in Russia, called uh, and again pronunciation not good. Uh, Kizlyar, uh, K-I-Z-L-Y-A-R. I'm. If anyone has the correct way to pronounce that, please let me know. Um, and it's a pomace-based spirit. Uh, that's uh, apparently it's similar to grappa. Uh, but it, you know, for years and years, it was marketed as uh, brandy or cognac. When I was reading about this, I was like, "Well, clearly this is this can't be accurate because you can only make cognac in cognac in France." In yeah. France, uh, but it turns out uh, this little distillery in the south of Russia uh, is allowed to make this uh, this this stuff. That's it's it's a grape distillate, and they are allowed to call it cognac. As of 1998, the French government or whatever. Whoever's in charge of that. That sounds decided. extremely unFrench, to be honest. Yeah, well, um, you ever been intimidated by like a guy who owns a distillery in Russia? Well, that's a good point. I don't know. I don't know if that's how it happened, but I've got an imagination. Anyway, I just thought I thought that was very interesting. That uh, anyway, he was he was a big fan of this uh, this brandy that came from the south of Georgia. Now there are some theories about uh, what happened when. Nazi Germany invaded Russia. As you might know, Russia and Germany had a non-aggression pact uh, that was set up by uh, Stalin's predecessor, uh, Molotov, and uh, you know I can't remember what the uh, German politician's name was, uh, but they were you know they were not supposed to go to war. Ru- uh, Germany started expanding and you know you know annexing this and that. Uh, you know Russia did a little bit of that. They took a little piece of Romania here and there and. Uh, but for the most part, Stalin, for whatever reason, trusted Hitler in, in thinking that they, they weren't going to invade. Um, sure enough, though, they fucking did. Oper- Operation Barbarossa happened in 1941. Uh, was it 1941? Yes. Yes. But um, no. 41. Uh, was it 43? 42. It was, uh, they invaded in the summer of 42. 42-43 um, yeah. was the first winter, and... I think all that got wrapped up. I think 43 was the next winter they went back in, and that pretty much just got wrapped up. I mean, yeah, just it, did not go well. Not well for the for anyone, really. Didn't go well for Russians anybody. came out on top, if you right. could call it that. Uh, anyway, um, right when Stalin's getting these reports of German, you know, German troops invading, he didn't believe any of it. And he went into, it's a little vague what actually happened. He apparently, he retreated for like five days up to, you know, a little bit over a week. Uh, and no one could get a response from him. No, he couldn't direct any, you know, he, all the direction that these generals needed was gone. And there's a theory that he was out there, you know, just in solitude drinking himself, you know, silly to, you know, get over the shock of this invasion. Um, there's... 
a lot of loose ends there though. He's not that he was not that kind of guy. He was very tactful and like very precise in his in his like dealings with people. I don't think that he was off just like drinking, you know, three bottles of vodka a day. There's a good theory is that he retreated to see if anyone would try and step in and take control. So he it was it was a way of him detecting any usurpers that may try and take any of his power, which is an interesting play, but the theory is that he might have been drunk the whole time. I don't think it, that, that that was the case. Probably not. I mean, you, you would think someone close to him would have taken advantage of him. Just to be clear, folks, on the dates for Operation Barbarossa, um, that began, I checked the internets here. Um, the invasion began Sunday, the 22nd, June, 1941. So you were right. Oh, okay. Well, there that you go. That was a year old. So yeah, 41 to 42, 42 to 43. And that's right when, that, that happened basically the same time that he officially became premier. Uh, I don't know what, exactly when he became premier, if it was before or after that. I assume it was before. Yeah, I think it was just before there. Yeah, I mean, I from what from what I've read and heard... Uh, but he was he was like the de facto ruler before that. Like, he was, he was pulling all the strings. Yeah, there were some people who had claims to the leadership there, but it was like Leon Trotsky. That dude ended up in Mexico where Stalin sent someone to kill him. You know, yeah, which is what Mexico's not far enough away. Um, yeah, so there, there's a few things like that. It's uh, interesting, I mean... I think after Stalin uh, passed away, it was like five, six years. Like, he passed away in the 1950s. and 53, maybe? That sounds right. Uh, a few years. We have, we have iPhones in front of us, and we're not, right. like, looking. But no one would say anything bad about him for a number of years. Uh, even, I think, Jace uh, said you ran across something said in the 70s, 80s. People were still not saying anything bad about Stalin because they were just terrified that he was still alive and just waiting for people to, like, come out and say... Yeah, there were, there were people that were scared to say, like, to admit that he was dead, even though it was, like, a total fact. Yeah, it was March 5th, 1953. Anyway, uh, wild stuff. Um, so, friends, identify the Stalins in your life and make sure that you uh, drink responsibly around them because you don't want to wake up in Siberia. Yeah, and maybe not trust leaders that don't drink at all. Definitely don't. <laughs> Let's talk about our sponsors for the show, Cathead Distilling. They make a gin, and it's called Bristo. Yep. And it's fantastic. It's uh, it's loosely along the lines of a London dry style gin, so it's very much coloring within the lines, but it's uh, it, it's fantastic. It's dry, very... Uh, I've had it in martinis. I've had a gin and tonics. I've had gimlets with it. It It's it's really a gin for any occasion. Uh, I would put it up against uh, the world's more famous gins. Uh, if you see it on the shelf, do yourself a favor and pick up a bottle, take it home, and... Uh, you know, just let it do it. Let it do its thing. It speaks for itself. Um, bright, citrusy, you know, balanced. It, it, I, I, they, they, I think they've had a barrel-aged gin of it, uh, a barrel-aged version of it out there. If you can, if you can find that. I think I've heard of that. Send me a bottle, because I miss it. It's, it's a little bit harder to find these days. Uh, but again, big thanks to the Cathead uh, Distillery folks for supporting the podcast. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in again to Pocket Liquor. This is our 10th episode. We are super stoked to be here and still be here, rocking and rolling. Uh, 
again, shoot us an email. We'd love to hear from anyone who's out there. Uh, we've got some more great stuff on the way. Things are building and looking great for the future. Thank you for sticking with us for so far. For, <laughs> for so long. <laughs>